Welcome, guys, to episode 26 of the JPS podcast. And in this episode, we have the founder of Sigma Nutrition, Danny Lennon, on the show. So welcome, Danny. Uh, thanks very much, Jacob, for having me. Pleasure to be here. Not a problem, man. Some of you may be familiar with Danny's podcast, Sigma Nutrition Radio. And Danny has been a provider of some of the highest quality evidence-based content related to nutrition, performance, exercise, for many years now, I've been following his podcast and all of this stuff he's put out, and it's of the highest caliber, so I recommend you guys check it out. For those of you who may not know who Danny is, he does have a master's degree in nutritional sciences, he's an online coach, and he specializes in working with professional MMA fighters, boxers, competitive powerlifters, and is quite experienced himself being a powerlifter and BJJ blue belt, so Danny know all about cutting weight and performing on the mat or the uh, platform, right? Yeah, I've had a like share of experiences both in a coaching capacity but also uh, as athletes. So I think, uh, as you, you'll probably agree, in a lot of cases that can be very useful and different experiences coaches have tend to play a massive role and are kind of just as big as the scientific component of coaching, having real-world experience, I suppose. So, yeah, for sure it's been useful. Definitely. So... I wanted to talk to you today about all things weight cutting, but more specifically in the context of powerlifting because it's a booming sport down in Australia and I'm sure many of the guys are going to be really interested to hear you know, what your uh, approach is and obviously how you guys go about it. So do you want to, before we get into things, talk to the guys about your background uh, in the sport of powerlifting as a coach, the fitness industry and what you're doing at the moment? Yeah, sure. So, uh, like you said, my initial interest in nutrition was kind of sparked whilst I was in um, college or, or university uh, the first time around. So, I was there, I was doing a degree in science education, and my own kind of interest around that time was playing different sports. So, I played a lot of uh, Gaelic football, a lot of soccer, um, and then when I got into college, started doing some MMA and some Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And so, as I started doing that outside of university, inside of university I was learning how to read scientific papers, how to break stuff down, how to actually read through journals. And so really out of my own interest started to look at stuff related to how I could improve as an athlete myself. Um, and so started digging through different uh, literature and started finding stuff out about nutrition that maybe was a bit different to what the conventional mainstream messages were, or at least what I had been uh, thought about up to that point. And uh, just got really fascinated by it. And uh, after university, I actually was qualified as a science uh, teacher. I did that for about a year before going back uh, to university to do my master's in nutritional science. And so uh, during that time, just started working with uh, clients uh, on their nutrition, built up my nutrition practice. And uh, I suppose during that time while I was coaching was also competing uh, a bit in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And uh, I suffered a, an injury, tore a, a labrum in, in my shoulder, um, which kind of put me out for quite a while. And it was during the kind of rehab from that I got a bit more into to lifting because I could see how that could allow me to rehab and get back effectively. And just more and more got into that. And uh, long story short, never really got back around to being competitive on the mats and decided to stick to this uh, lifting weight stuff. It tended to be a bit more fun. And uh, so over the last few years, I've started competing in powerlifting here in Ireland. 
And uh, yeah, that's been virtually my sole focus from an athletic standpoint over the last couple of years. Um, and how that's kind of married nicely in with the work I do on the nutrition front is that from maybe my experiences um, in MMA and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and just different coaches I got to know, uh, a lot of the clients I started working with were professional uh, boxers, professional MMA fighters, and started taking care of their fight camp nutrition, which obviously a large component of is making weight effectively, but also being able to rehydrate uh, and, and restore muscle glycogen before they go and compete. So just out my interest in those sports, I found that particularly fascinating. And so that, that was the group of people I tended to lean most towards with my own work. And uh, so, yeah, over the last few years, I've been working with a ton of professional athletes in combat sports. Um, I've worked with some people uh, within powerlifting, um, probably most well-known that people will recognize is Brett Gibbs, um, and as well as some Olympic uh, weightlifters and other athletes making sports uh, weight in different sports like taekwondo or judo. Um, so, yeah, it's been really fascinating. And obviously, there's a lot of different nuance between those different sports, as we'll probably get into when we discuss powerlifting, you can do some slightly different things. Um, but yeah, that's where it's been. It's, it's been that kind of uh, road of, of working in both of those fields of, of coaching and competing. And uh, it's certainly been a case of trying to work out what the scientific literature can point us towards as a most effective and safe way to make weight. But really a lot of it, uh, as we'll probably discuss, because the scarcity of the literature is a down to... Uh, looking at trial and error, what works, finding out that stuff, and really the individual response is such a huge thing here. So, uh, yeah, that's kind of a briefly what, where kind of all came from, I suppose. Yeah, man, it's very cool, and uh, you're putting out a lot of really good content. And I actually downloaded your Sigma weight cutting system, and it's absolute class. There's a lot of really good information there about the key variables and how people can go about manipulating weight. So, guys, I suggest... You download that if you want a really comprehensive guide as to how to cut weight. And Danny, do you want to just explain to the guys what the weight system involves and you know who it's for? Sure. So uh, the weight cutting system was essentially uh, something I wanted to uh, bring out to be able to help more fighters that I was working with because obviously I can only work one-on-one -on -one with a certain uh, number of people. Uh, so I'm limited, number one, by time, and then also in a lot of cases uh, by expense as well, given that at least people starting in their early uh, stages of a professional career in fighting or even at the amateur level, there's obviously a lot of expenses and not too much income in the beginning. So I, I realize full-on coaching for some people may not be possible. So it was try and see how can I get this information that is going to help people and is going to improve their health and performance uh, without uh, and trying to get that to as many people as possible. So the weight cutting system is essentially a, a blueprint or a guide of how to, number one, formulate your nutrition outside of the weight cutting uh, arena. So how to just eat to propel training and recovery throughout all stages of the year. And then as you transition towards a fight, how you might want to make some changes to, to make weight effectively. And then the actual weight cutting protocol that I use with the fighters is there as well. So it's really uh, what I try to get to is all, anything related to nutrition, weight cutting, hydration, supplementation that I will do with a fighter is in there. So it's mainly aimed at combat sport athletes. So boxing, MMA, um, maybe some of uh, the Olympic sports like judo, taekwondo, 
Uh, a lot of the focus on the weight cutting is initially set up for a 24-hour weigh-in uh, because most of the guys will be using that. Uh, but there's also a section in there that uh, accounts for two-hour weigh-ins or same-day weigh-ins, which you may see in amateur boxing or some amateur MMA events. Uh, so, yeah, that's what the system's all about, and it's mainly to help those people. Um, and there, there, ha- there is uh, plans to do a version for uh, people involved in strength sport because as, as we may get to today, there's obviously some key differences if you're an Olympic weightlifter or you're a powerlifter. Um, so that, that's uh, not released yet, but there's plans on the way for that. But uh, yeah, that's, that's what the system's all about. Awesome, man. I'm excited for that one to come out. And when we talk about making weight, there's typically two options that people have. So there's an acute weight loss or a chronic weight loss. So I first wanted to discuss acute weight loss because it's a hell of a lot more sexy than telling people to eat at a calorie deficit for 12, 16 weeks. Sure. And that's what everyone wants to do. They don't want to diet for a long time, so they just want to train and then, oh, yeah, I want to cut weight. So I figured we'd talk about that one first to keep everybody interested. So when we're trying to make weight and manipulate those variables leading up to the meat, what is your approach and what are the factors that contribute to this rapid a transient change in body mass. Yeah, no, that's, that's a really good point. I'm glad you outlined it that we do have this difference in a, a chronic weight loss where you're looking at, say, body fat versus that kind of acute weight loss or what really most people think of when you say the word weight cut, what they do in the final six, seven days before meat. Um, so there's, of course, a number of different things that we can do to rapidly drop body weight without actually affecting anything to do with body fat or, or muscle mass. Uh, there's a the, the kind of few key ones that we'll, we'll probably get into. One that m- everyone talks about is obviously water and body water. So you can lose that either by urinating more, or sweating. Uh, you'll have glycogen stores, which is your your source of carbohydrate in the muscle. We can deplete some of those to again lose some uh, weight. And there's water associated with that. And there's also the contents of your intestine or your gut residue that we can also decrease because that holds some weight too. So the way I try and think people to, to think about this for a powerlifting context is that the starting point is always going to be how much are you actually cutting in the first place. And this will probably, the absolute amount will probably of what you should do should probably depend on, first of all, what federation you're in and what length weigh in. Um, so for the moment, we'll presume that a lot of people listening are maybe looking at two-hour weigh-in if they're like an IPF affiliate. Uh, but there's obviously other federations where you may have a 24-hour weigh-in, which changes the game completely for, for a weight cut standpoint. For two-hour weigh-in, then you want to be within uh, a place that you can cut a decent amount of weight, but it's not going to be so much that your performance is going to be negatively hampered. And so if you've only two hours between the weigh-in and when you maybe are going to start squatting, you really don't have all that much time to rehydrate and to get some more carbohydrates in uh, and so you're, there is going to be a certain cap on how much you probably should cut uh, that the, the absolute amount is again going to be probably dictated by your body size and your weight class obviously if you're a 105 uh, kilo lifter you can probably cut more absolute weight than a 66 kilo lifter but proportionally a lot of the time it's going to be fairly similar um, and so uh, as I'll uh, mention where we get this from it can be anywhere from like maybe up to 4 to 5% for some guys that are able to cut that much weight in that final week of their body weight. Now, the big key thing for people to realize is that's not a uh, 3, 4, 5% decrease via dehydration alone because typically that's what most people end up doing 
And if you're going to dehydrate yourself by 5% and then only have two hours to try and reverse that, you're probably not, uh, you're almost definitely not going to be able to rehydrate fully. And that may then have uh, an impact on performance afterwards. So the goal is, I mean, just to take one step back, if we're to look at all the things that would give best performance, if there was no such thing as weigh-ins and you were going to go and lift, you would want to have, uh, be completely hydrated. You're going to have some food in your system and you're probably going to have some uh, carbohydrates in your system as well. And you'd be feeling good and that would be the way you'd set yourself up to lift the most. Now, unfortunately, to make weight, we're almost doing a lot of things that are opposite to that. We're dehydrating slightly. We're going to be eating less carbohydrate. We're going to be eating less food uh, total or at least changing some of the food choices. And so there's certain things that can have a negative impact on performance. So the first place to start is what things can we do that will decrease body weight that aren't going to really detrimentally uh, affect performance. Uh, So the first one is something I mentioned earlier is the contents of your gut. So gut residue. So from a a a variety of different foods, mainly high fiber foods, there can be left a residue inside in your intestines. And obviously if that's there, this contributes to some sort of weight. And so people often do things like they don't eat anything for 24 to 36 hours before a meat or they start doing colon cleanses to get rid of some of this weight. Uh, there's actually a very simple way that people can do this, and it's simply go on a low-fiber diet for two to three days before their meat. And simply that three-day window is enough. So you can mainly take out your high-fiber foods, your whole-grain foods, any of the foods that are typically your main contributors to fiber intake. Keep that fairly low for a few days, and you'll actually lose predictably for depending on the person, maybe somewhere around 1%, maybe a bit more or less uh, of your body weight alone. That's going to have zero impact in your performance. And straight away now, you've already lost a bit of body weight. And that means you have less that you actually have to cut via dehydration. So that'd be the first place that people should start. Uh, The second one we can look at is probably carbohydrate restriction in that final week. Um, Again, carbohydrates can have a very beneficial impact on uh, powerlifting training and uh, particularly depending on the nature of someone's training and their volume, et cetera, et cetera. But it can obviously be very beneficial, but there's not a, as much of a need, at least in powerlifting compared to say MMA or boxing for the competition day to have completely full glycogen stores. So we have a bit more wiggle room for carbohydrate restriction in that we can restrict carbs leading up to that weigh-in, have some sort of carbohydrate meal after the weigh-in. And even though our glycogen stores may not be full by the time you lift, you can still probably be in a pretty good position. So probably anywhere from seven to 10 days out, starting to decrease carbohydrate intake uh, and keeping that fairly low will allow you to lose glycogen from the muscle. Uh, And that glycogen, as you lose it, there's a certain amount of water that's going to be associated with that as well. So you're losing an extra bit of water as well. So between the low residue diet, some carbohydrate restriction, you're already a good way of the way there to making some weight. And then the final bit could be a uh, water cut. So this would be, uh, I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with water loading early in the week and then some restriction uh, perhaps the day before the weigh-in. And we can talk about the water loading specifically if you want to. Um, and that's the, the bit we can, uh, to get the final bit of weight off. And, and between those three, there's really no need to pretty much go beyond that uh, in that that should be able to take a substantial amount of weight that will be able to get you pretty much down to a weight class if you're hovering just above. And the rest of it comes to that the longer-term stuff that we, we haven't got to, 
of where you're going to maintain your kind of walk around weight, where you're putting yourself in a position of how much weight you're actually cutting. And if you do that in a smart manner, then between these three strategies we've just talked about, you can probably be pretty safe to be able to lose a, like I said, anywhere between two to four, maybe even 5% of your body weight and still perform perfectly fine. Uh, although again, like I said, that's highly variable on how each person uh, feels after these cuts and how each person performs. But it's somewhere in that range is, is probably very doable, I think, for, for a two-hour uh, powerlifting lane. Yeah, definitely. You bring up a lot of really good points there. And it is common practice in you know, cutting weight for powerlifters to you know, use the sauna as a force, you know, I guess, variable uh, in their approach you know, with gut mass glycogen, water loading, and then add in the sauna, you know, to top it off. What are your thoughts on that? Um, obviously, it's ideal to cut weight without further dehydration. Can you explain to guys when you may need to use the sauna and how to go about it? Yeah, sure. So, um, in certain cases, you, there can be um, value in something like a sauna or even some induced sweating via some um, doing some exercise with some extra layers on, for example. If someone is going to go that route, that means they're probably cutting quite a considerable amount of weight, and it's certainly going to be at the upper end of the, the range that I would advise people to. Uh, but again, this is going to be highly variable on how they feel. Some people can do this and, and actually perform fine, and they'll know that basing on their typical performance or estimated one at max, for example. And other people get to even cut 3% of their body weight and just don't feel good. Um, so if they're someone who's tried this and know they can do that amount of weight, then sure, maybe they want to go with a sauna or some sort of other induced sweating method. If you're going to do that, the way I would advise is to do that as close to the weigh-in as possible because that just decreases the amount of time you're actually in that most dehydrated state. So the worst thing someone can do is two days out before their meat start using a sauna to dehydrate themselves. Or even most typically people are worried about waking up heavy the, next, the morning of their meat. So the day before the, that afternoon, they go into the sauna, they make weight there and then, and then they're dehydrated from that time point all the way through until uh, they weigh in. Um, ideally, you would want to do it as close to the weigh-in as possible. Um, now, that becomes a problem, again, depending on scheduling. Obviously, if someone has a morning flight, they may have to weigh in at 7 a.m. So that means getting to a sauna probably 6 a.m. if they have still weight to cut, and now they're in a kind of time crunch to do it. Uh, if they're going to do it, uh, make sure it's a relatively small amount of weight. I mean, doing it for like a final half a kilo the morning just before you weigh in is kind of cool. Thinking that you can hop in a sauna and cut two kilos off uh, and then have no kind of ill effects is probably a bit too much of a stretch. So I would do it as a, kind of that final bit of weight you might want to lose so you wake up, still half a kilo to go, you go in, lose that, weigh in, and then start rehydrating. Uh, but again, your actual performance is probably going to be highly dependent on, on the individual. Some people just can't tolerate cutting that much. Uh, some people can. So uh, yeah, that's where I'd advise people. Do it as close to the weigh-in as possible. Keep it fairly small amounts. And, and if you get everything else in order that we've mentioned beforehand, then you're probably, um, it should be that just that final icing on the cake. Definitely. And just to backtrack uh, a step there, you spoke about how people can manipulate their you know, gut residue and obviously 
glycogen is pretty simple by reducing carbohydrates. What is your practice surrounding water loading and depletion? You know, what are the percentages in which people should be drinking based on their body weight? Do you align this with electrolyte manipulation? Do you want to talk to the guys about that? Sure. So uh, in terms of uh, water loading, this has been something that's been around for years that people have tried in various different protocols. Uh, although when you look to the scientific literature, there's been almost uh, nothing that has looked at it in the context of what people actually do in terms of the amount of water they actually use in these loading strategies and then having the window between uh, a weigh-in and then a rehydration uh, window. So we've we've had nothing really to go on. And so when I was writing the guide, there was uh, at that time no real published data on a good quality or at least something that you could point to and say, here's a good quality protocol. Um, however, there was um, in press a study that had been done at the Australian Institute of Sport um, by a, uh, yep, you know him, Mr. Reed Real did a fantastic study uh, there in the group at the Australian Institute of Sport. Um, and at that time it was still in press, but I'd been able to uh, get some of that preliminary data and actually got to talk to Reed about some of this stuff. And so in their study, uh, basically the, the protocol I, I go by is very similar to, to what lines up with that. Uh, which number one is great to see, but also gives us a good basis to say, look, other stuff might work as well, but we know this one definitely has some effect. So in that study, they had a group that did a water loading phase for three days before restricting versus a group that just had their normal intake and then did the restriction as well. The group that did the water loading actually ended up losing more water during that restriction phase. So therefore, our front kind of first signs to show that, yes, this actually works. And so... From my standpoint, at least if we know that this protocol works, either three to four days of water loading followed by one day of restriction uh, is kind of going to produce some reliable results. That's typically what we go with. Uh, so from about if you have a meet on a Saturday or Sunday, typically we'll start water loading from that Monday. Uh, we put it as uh, a simple way to do it is to say take your body weight in kilos and get 10% of that. Uh, that would be your intake of water in liters. So an 80 kilo lifter, you're probably looking at about eight liters um, of water. You do that for three to four days, all the way up until one day before your weigh-in, which is typically going to be the same day as the meat. And in that day before the weigh-in, we'll reduce uh, that down to about uh, 1%. Um, so again, it's going to be roughly around a liter of water, maybe a bit less. And we're going to get that mainly in the early part of the day. Uh, and then they're going to start the water restriction from that time point. Uh, the exact time point is going to depend, obviously, if you're doing a morning or afternoon weigh-in, uh, but it's going to be some point previous that day, and we'll also monitor their weight as it starts to drop, uh, because obviously in this, this context, if we're saying this person is dropping maybe 3% of their body weight over this week, uh, that's a, quite a bit different to what we might do in a 24-hour weigh-in scenario, where we have guys losing up to 8 9% of their body weight um, sometimes even more. And so there's a much uh, larger onus for them to lose more weight and dehydrate themselves a lot more. And, and so we'll monitor the weight over the course of the day before the meet. If it starts dropping too low, they can obviously take a bit more water in. Uh, but typically, uh, we'll allow them to restrict water that way. They wake up in the morning of the meet, and then depending on where their weight is at, uh, they'll either continue that complete restriction, or if they're already underweight and they've quite a a significant gap, they can probably take in a bit uh, of water or some food then. Uh, so it's all kind of dependent on how their body is reacting and what weight they're sitting at. Uh, but that's typically the protocol we go by. So 10% for three to four days, 
one day at about 1% and then uh, restriction of, of the morning of your meat until you actually weigh in. Awesome. And just to get a little bit of uh, a geek on here, did you want to outline the, you know, the mechanisms behind this and how this actually works for those interested? Yeah, sure. So there's still some kind of discussion of exactly what's going on here. Uh, so anyone who's kind of looked into this previously will have probably heard people talk about um, different hormones like aldosterone, antidiuretic hormone, uh, essentially these hormones that are related to water resorption uh, in the body and trying to manipulate them to some degree. Uh, so the kind of old idea that we had was if we have uh, a high level of water, water loading, taking in more than we actually need, we are actually going to downregulate um, some of the hormones that are going to cause us to hold onto water. So then we're, we're going to just urinate out more. And this is kind of an obvious thing people will uh, uh, feel when they start water loading. If you drink eight liters of water in a day, you're going to just urinate more. Now, the kind of idea was if you do that for a number of days, when you switch back to a low intake of water, there's kind of like this lag time where it takes your body to almost catch up to that. And so you're going to stay in having increased urine output, even though you're taking in a lot less water. Therefore, you're going to lose more water weight. So whether that's been, uh, there's, there's nothing that I've seen that has like 100% confirmed that's exactly what's going on with this exact lag time of a day that's causing this increased water. But we definitely do see changes in some of those hormones. And I think actually in the uh, Read Real study we mentioned earlier, they looked at a few different hormones. And I think they saw uh, a big difference in one of them called uh, vasopressin, uh, which is, uh, and I don't think there was really too much difference in aldosterone, if I, if I remember correctly. So they saw this change in, in vasopressin. And the kind of mechanism that they talked about was it had influences on these aquaporin channels which are um, uh, essentially kind of water ducts uh, within the body. And so that it's going to be affecting how much water you're losing via that way. So that's the kind of, uh, on one hand, the kind of idea behind how water loading came into being, of trying to uh, essentially um, upregulate how much water we're losing and then switch to a restriction and that c continues going. But on a kind of real evidence-based level, it's probably something to do with vasopressin and some other hormones that is maybe affecting different things that we haven't actually uh, studied yet. So I think some of the next stage in some of that research is going to be to see, okay, we know this water loading works and we know there's some sort of change in some of these hormones, but what is it actually doing? Um, so for example, that stuff on the aquaporin channels that uh, Reed Reels group mentioned was more related. I think that was based on some rodent data that they'd seen in a, in a, a different setting outside of weight cutting. Um, so Still to be determined exactly what part of the body is being affected, but we know it's doing something to some of the hormones that control our, our water absorption. Um, and then based on that, we're having this increased water loss when we do start to restrict. Awesome, man. It's um, yeah, definitely an area that needs a little bit more work, but we're slowly starting to piece it together. And it's common practice for many people to manipulate sodium in conjunction with water. So they'll load sodium and cut it right back as water's still high before we restrict water on that final day. Is this something that you recommend with your athletes or do you see this to be too detrimental, um, you know, causing cramping and things like this? Uh, yeah, so we don't do too much uh, super high sodium loading, uh, just purely for the reason I haven't seen 
uh, anything to point towards uh, that, that it's definitely going to have a, a beneficial effect. Um, although that said, uh, it, it's pretty easy for them throughout that week to add some more salts and meals if they do want to make sure they're getting enough. Um, and again, you, you could think of it similar to water. Well, I'll, if I'm doing water loading and then restriction, maybe I'll do the same with sodium. So I've no problem with people who maybe advise people to do that or if they've found it to work. Uh, but typically we just maintain people at a relatively normal intake of sodium, which I think in most cases is actually decently high anyway uh, for, for a lot of people, depending on the foods they're consuming. Uh, we will do some uh, sodium restriction leading up to the weigh-in. Um, a lot of cases for, uh, say, a, a powerlifting meet, if someone has like 2% of their body weight to, to lose, it's not really that much of an issue because they can lose that weight anyway. Uh, for a lot of the guys that have 24-hour weigh-ins or the combat sport athletes who are losing 8 9% of their body weight, then every small bit counts. And, and so we will do some uh, low-sodium stuff. Probably one to two days is probably enough during that restriction phase. So it just means any of the foods they typically have that are higher in salt will take that out. So no kind of salted snacks or, or salted meat. Just get away from that stuff. Don't add salt to meals. Um, so we'll do that. Uh, and I think it probably is going to have some reliable effect. I mean, we see quite a lot in the literature of, um, at least in the early phase of when someone is switched to a low sodium diet, there can be some extra losses of body water. So I think it probably does induce some effect to how much is actually needed. Probably again, depends on how much weight someone is cutting. So if you have a lot of weight to cut or you just want to be extra sure, then sure, fine, go lower sodium, probably even one to two days. Uh, before the meat is probably good there. So just avoid really salty foods. And then on, on the flip side of that, once someone does weigh in, you probably want to get some electrolytes back into the system, including uh, sodium. Yeah, awesome, man. And if you were to devise a checklist of the prerequisites for people to have before committing to a short-term you know, weight loss phase, such as you know, being within striking distance, tracking baseline intake of calories, things like that, what would that checklist entail? Sure, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I think the first thing I'd, I'd probably say to people is to evaluate why they want to cut weight. Um, I think, it, like you mentioned, it can be quite a kind of sexy thing to tell people, oh, I'm cutting weight for this meat, I have X amount of kilos to lose. But in a lot of cases, it's either not worth it or just kind of redundant to try and do so. So there's a big difference between someone going to a national championships where they have a good chance of placing and they're a couple of kilos above a certain weight class that they're going to be really competitive in and they've been lifting for years versus someone who has just started taking up some lifting, is going to do their first meet for a bit of fun, has no experience on the platform, and now they're going to add in this extra stress of having to cut weight for a meet or no real gain, right? I, I think it's kind of pointless. So I think for people who are just in their first couple of meets that are building up experiences that aren't doing it to go and uh, try and win out a weight class, then they're better off going in, getting the experience of that meat, coming comfortable, well hydrated, well fed, don't even worry about cutting weight in the first place. Um, if it's someone that has been lifting for quite a while and is planning on being competitive, and they're kind of in between weight classes and they've made that decision to go to one below. Like you said, the first thing is make sure that you give yourself enough time to plan ahead that you can be within ideally around 3% at most of that weight cut. Um, 
So like I said, you, there is a chance you could probably cut more. Um, but 3% is a, a nice, straightforward one that you can probably do without too much detriment if done correctly. Um, so I would say get yourself within that kind of range by getting your body composition in order. If it's too much of a hassle to do that, then you can either try a bigger weight cut or just commit to the higher weight class. Again, this is a more discussion that will depend on the person. Um, after that, once they've done those things, then I would uh, ideally have a chance where they can try out doing this weight cut or competing at this weight class in a non-priority meet is probably a good way to put it. So whether that's a mock meet in their local gym, whether that's just they do a cut when there's no competition coming up and test their numbers, um, or at least something where they don't just go into a meet that they're putting a lot of uh, pressure on themselves and now for the first time try and cut this amount of weight. Um, that can surely, I think, uh, number one, negatively affect them psychologically and, and also it just adds too much pressure to try and get this stuff right. Um, so there'd be a first few things. And then after that, when it, if, when it actually comes to the weight cut, is to, number one, don't panic, which happens quite a lot when people first do a weight cut because uh, they start, for example, early in the week, there's not much too much change. I mean, you're starting to water load. You're not really going to see much uh, happen. You might see slight drop from lower carbohydrate intake. And it might even be still the evening before you weigh in, you still might be over that weight class. But the thing is, if you've everything planned out based on how much weight you can probably lose with each of these things, you should be fine. And so don't panic too early. Um, have a clear idea of what you're doing from well out in advance. So don't just suddenly start things two days before you have to weigh in. Like this is like from like eight, nine days out, you should be thinking about these, what you're going to start to do. Have that sequence of you start the low carb diet, then from early, like that Monday, you're going to start water loading. Then uh, from the middle of the week, you're probably going to start the low fiber diet. So have each day planned out what you need to do on each of those days. Stick to that plan and then place most of your um, uh, emphasis, at least first, on the things that are going to have the lowest impact on performance. So like we said, the go-to one, first of all, is probably the low residue diet, your impact on performance. Lower carb diet for that week is probably not going to impact your uh, uh, lifts for like one day on a meat day all that much, particularly because you can have some carbohydrate meal after you weigh in. And then after that, making sure you don't cut too much water, you're probably going to be fine as well. So really it's all about planning out those days and having like almost a timeline eight days out. Okay, what does each day here look like? And at which day am I starting, for example, the water load? Which day am I starting the restriction? Which day am I starting lower fiber intake? What meals might that look like? Um, because it can be easy to say, oh yeah, I'll just cut out my fiber that day. But if then people start to panic when they realize that maybe I should make this food choice instead of another. Um, so there are a few things that are just coming to mind. Uh, I know that was kind of a roundabout way of answering it. So I don't know if that made too much sense, but uh, uh, there are a few things that pop into my mind about how to kind of pre-plan it essentially. Yeah. Awesome. It does take a little bit of uh, practice and knowledge about nutrition and you know, that was one of my questions which you answered just then was when should an athlete practice cutting weight, um, you know, how far out for a meet and so on. But you did a really good job in answering that. And something I wanted to actually ask you was, you know, we know that rapid weight loss, if we, you know, within that 3 to 5% isn't necessarily going to detriment performance, but it has been shown to adversely affect health markers and hormones. So is there a maximum amount of weight cuts that an athlete should perform each year to minimize you know, issues with their well-being um, because we do see a lot of athletes you know cutting 
you know, they're competing four times a year and they'll do that uh, rapid weight loss. And, you know, just from what I know, it's not healthy. Um, so is there a maximum amount? Should people be a little bit more selective when they cut, um, you know, for those important meats and so forth? What's your take on that? Yeah, so I think uh, perhaps the, the good thing in this context is that uh, I think probably a good number just in general, even outside of weight cutting for people to be competing in meats is probably going to be around that range of maybe three, possibly four times a year. Um, and it seems to be the more advanced you get people are probably going to be closer to two or three. Obviously, more novice lifters end up might doing a bit more for experience. But again, that, that's variable. But I think around like if you're doing it three to four times and they're fairly spread out across the year, that should be a decent amount of time to kind of recover, so to, to speak, some of the negative physiology that happens. I think a lot of it with these acute weight losses, those changes in certain hormones, for example, are quite transient changes. And so they'll reverse pretty quickly after uh, you, you making the changes in terms of water intake and carbohydrate intake, uh, also calories if someone's been dieting. So it's, it's the same way if someone's been dieting, you see a lot of changes negatively in hormones, right? Um, but a lot of them, after they finish the end of a diet and bring calories back up, they gain a bit of body fat. You tend to see a reversal of a lot of that stuff. So I don't know if there's a, in a kind of an upper limit of how many times you can do this. I certainly think it, it obviously depends on how harsh of a, a cut it is. And uh, working with a lot of the, the pro fighters, uh, you tend to see obviously a lot larger cuts. A lot of them just really don't care, to be quite honest, about long-term health when you're in the game. And you, you have to understand that it's just a pro athlete, right? They're just, they're focused on the performance and you got to do what you do to get they them to make weight and they're going to perform. They are getting in a ring, right? <laughs> right, yeah. They're, they're going to go at the other head and hammer. So we, we, can, we, can, we can look at their, uh, we have to look after their health as much as possible, but in the context of they're still going to go and do this. Um, so I think the larger weight cuts certainly are a problem. We just haven't found a solution to get a better way of doing it right now. I mean, we've tried different things where they've tried to shorten the window of uh, between weigh-in and fight, but that still leads people cutting weight, and that makes it more dangerous when they fight. Now they're trying stuff, for example, in the UFC, where they have actually have the weigh-ins at 10 a.m. in the morning as opposed to the afternoon, the day before the fight, so you have a longer window. So you could say that's a bit safer because they have more time to rehydrate, but it also gives them a window to maybe cut a bit more, Although so they're trying to clamp out on that now as well by having a, a certain cutoff that you have to be like 8% uh, close to your weight, I think, uh, by the Tuesday before the fight. Uh, so there's things people are trying to do, but we still haven't got a good um, handle on how to stop people doing dangerous stuff. For most people, like I say, if we're talking about powerlifting, particularly if it's something in a federation like an IPS affiliate where you're doing it just before you go and lift, you have a few hours, you're not going to get away with a really large weight cut uh, in general uh, without a massive decrease in performance. And so most people are going to be in a range that's fairly, uh, I would say, uh, whilst in that time point maybe not so good for health, is something that's probably not going to cause long-term health issues if done correctly. Now, where we run into problems is, like I said earlier, if people are trying to cut 5% of their body weight via dehydration alone, and then having to go and lift, or they don't pay attention to what they do after they weigh in. They just have a, a sandwich and don't worry about like rehydrating properly or electrolytes. Then, yeah, maybe there's some issues. Um, but as of right now, I, I don't think cutting weight for a meat three times a year is going to have any long-term health effects from what I can see. Um, but 
for sure for people who are doing the larger weight cuts for 24-hour weigh-ins, doing that consistently a few times a year over the course of a, a, a full career, uh, I can I could definitely uh, see the at least the, the hypothetical reasoning that that can cause long-term health impacts. Although I'm not too uh, sure of good quality research we have on that, which would be really interesting to see. Uh, that would interest me to look at for sure. Awesome, man. Thank you for that. So after we've cut the weight, you know, we've weighed in, you know, something I make note of to my athletes is that a weight cut is only as good as the refeed slash rehydration. And what are your strategies that you use with your athletes when refeeding to hydrate and, you know, replenish glycogen with a, obviously a two-hour window? So what would that look like, you know, from the minute they step off the scale? Yeah, so uh, in this scenario, obviously the, the most important thing is if they've done any sort of dehydration is to get water back in. And that's pretty obvious. Most people are going to have some sort of drink um, straight after they, they weigh in. Uh, like you mentioned, the timing is important. So it's literally as soon as they get off the scale to get something uh, back into them. Uh, so we'll typically have them consume a shake that has um, so probably like 500 mils of water straight away once they get off that scale. Within that, there's probably going to be some electrolytes uh, as well, so electrolyte powder, or they use some like Diorolite or some other supplement. And then uh, they're probably going to have some carbohydrate in there as well. Uh, that will help kind of just sweeten the drink, make them drink more of it, but it'll also allow uh, to get some carbohydrates back in the system, uh, particularly if they've gone quite low carb and they've cut quite a lot of weight. Um, now, there's probably not a huge amount of time to completely refill glycogen if they're completely depleted. Uh, but in some scenarios, it, it might not even be necessary that they had either completely depleted glycogen or on the flip side, if they did, to completely restore glycogen uh, for the meat. Uh, we know that just having some carbohydrate uh, available in the system, even if it's not been turned into uh, glycogen yet, if you just consume some glucose and have it available, can have an impact on performance uh, just having uh, that in the system. So getting uh, some sort of carbohydrates in that meal uh, the one thing that I've came more and more around to is just making sure it's uh, meals and drinks that the athlete feels good on, uh, because certainly mistakes that I've made personally uh, in the past after weigh-ins is to plan out uh, like exactly uh, like an ideal uh, nutrient profile of what I want to consume in that time frame, and then pick kind of some foods that are going to produce that but then not really caring about how I would actually feel after consuming those. And that can be uh, quite a, a large error. Uh, and so you, you find different people respond differently to different foods. So for example, for me, um, having a ton of uh, milk after a weigh-in uh, is not a good idea. Uh, just don't feel good in the warm-up room. Just for whatever reason, it kind of gives me a sickly feeling in my stomach, even though usually I tolerate it fine. Um, and again, on paper, look, as it's fluid, it has lots of water, you have loads of electrolytes in milk, it's going to have a carbohydrate content, and it's actually tasty, so it's easy to drink, right? Get some chocolate milk. But just that was one food, for me, wasn't a good idea. Uh, so um, again, some people like to have a fairly uh, decent meal, so it could be a number of uh, large sandwiches, for example, that are easy to consume. Some people don't feel like eating at all. So for them, it's a bit more of a challenge. So we rely mainly then on something like shakes or something that's very light to eat, like maybe some uh, rice cakes uh, with, with some fruit, for example. Um, so it really depends on 
getting the, of course addressing the water electrolytes and then some sort of carbohydrate but putting that in certain meals that are going to be fairly uh, light uh, in most cases um, unless the athlete is purposely looking or, or feels better when they have that kind of bloat almost and, and you'll probably know a lot of athletes that do feel that way um, anecdotally it tends to be more of the heavier weight class guys just feel better and feel stronger once they've had a, a larger meal so even if it's not di- fully digested it's kind of sitting there some of them just feel good on it so um, whereas I would kind of go the other way I prefer to have something in my system but not particularly feel overly bloated from it um, so that, that's the thing. So just picking food choices that make sense there. Don't pick food choices that you never usually eat or you're not used to consuming, particularly around exercise. So once you've taken uh, stock of making sure you get your water intake right, so again, depending on how much water you've lost for your dehydration, getting that back in, probably at a, around the rate of one liter per hour is probably as much as you can probably consume. So there's no need to drink like five liters immediately. You're just going to urinate it out. So about a liter per hour uh, of, of water, uh, added in some, some carbohydrates, some like uh, carbohydrate-based foods that you enjoy, and whatever stuff you're usually used to eating, uh, that would be probably fairly similar to what you might have as a kind of pre-workout snack before a usual training day is probably a good place to go. Awesome, man. Some really practical advice there. And the question I had for you was, have you ever had athletes who have overfed or overhydrated after a weight cut and seen a negative impact on their performance due to you know gut distension like you know, forcing them to shift forward when they're squatting you know, indigestion you know big drops in insulin because they've just had this bolus of carbs and then you know after a couple of hours they just feel like crap um have you had any experience with those type of situations um i, I think it's probably more uh, on the psychological side so uh, I've never seen anything where it's it caused, um, for example, like gut distension to, to cause something to, to change in their movement pattern. Um, although th- that would be interesting to see. I think it's it, it's kind of plausible for sure. Uh, it's been more things on the psychological side. That's And this includes stuff that I've done myself. Like I mentioned, there's certain things where you just don't feel good. And either, uh, so for example, one thing that a lot of people may have issues with is that why you should trial it before going to a meet is if you're using uh, carbohydrate supplements and some glucose powder, a lot of that can give people uh, GI distress if they take too much of a, a dose in one go. And just feeling bad like that or feeling um, um, some pain or gastrointestinal distress or just feeling a bit overly bloated uh, can just psychologically affect how you get ready and, and how you warm up. Um, I mean, there's already enough pressure on it and people want to be at their best when they're going in. And if in the back of their mind, there's something telling you that hey, I feel off compared to what I usually do, uh, some people can let that uh, affect them for sure. So I think it's um, anything like that that can be off-putting. Um, it doesn't mean that you're going to have a bad performance, uh, but it sure can affect your uh, psychology. And depending on how people are set up uh, psychologically, some people let that get to them more than others. Um, so I've definitely seen that. I've start seeing people who just report feeling uh, like super hot and sweating all the time. Um, so again, I don't know if that's just from the types of meals they take in or they overdid it or again, just some uh, gastrointestinal distress causing them to have some sort of adverse reaction. Um, but uh, the biggest one I would see is probably just not feeling good and, and therefore that allowing them to psychologically psych themselves out almost. 
Awesome, awesome. And in what cases would you advise against an acute weight cut? You know, obvious answer here is if you're not within striking distance, but you know, is there a way that you screen someone to assess whether or not they're going to be somebody who will be able to cope with the stresses of, you know, cutting weight? How do you go about determining whether somebody's mm -hmm. cut weight? Yeah, so um, for powerlifting specifically, this is this kind of just ties into a longer term question of what weight class is best for you. Um, and so uh, I, I kind of like what uh, Greg Knuckles uh says about really your best weight class is the highest weight class you can get into without getting super fat, right? So if you can maintain a relatively lean uh, physique, and again, relatively lean is different for different people, but just like not overly fat, um, and you can stay fairly lean, the, the higher you can go in terms of uh, your body weight, and therefore the more muscle mass you're putting on, is probably going to be more, uh, more of an advantage in powerlifting. Um, and really you see that quite a lot of shorter lifters uh, in a certain weight class are tend to be more competitive on average than a very tall lifter purely because for that same body weight they can have more muscle mass. So for lifters who are either fairly new to lifting weights or are maybe very uh, young in terms of age, uh, just chronologically, um, where they have quite a lot of potential still to gain quite a lot of more muscle mass, then they are probably best just not worrying about cutting weight for the moment, worrying about uh, instead gaining more muscle mass, getting bigger, fitting out the frame into the next weight class above. And sure, for the next couple of meets, they might not be as competitive if they, if they cut weight. But in the longer term, they're probably going to end up there anyway. They're now, because they're not having to cut weight, they don't have to keep a check on their calories being super low or, or dieting down. They can have a longer period of the year to where they're going to be gaining weight. They're going to be gaining more muscle. And then in the long term, they're probably going to be more competitive. Uh, so that can be a hard thing to sell people. But I definitely think for people who are younger or newer to training or who still have quite a long way to go in terms of their potential to gain muscle mass, probably looking at in the long term, you're going to be at higher weight class. So if you're already between the two of them, then just for the next few, just just take that higher weight class, grow into it, give more time to gaining. Um, the same thing would go for someone who's just new to competing. It, unless you have some sort of background in a, a barbell sport or some sort of strength sport, or you're just a freak athlete, you're probably not just going to take up powerlifting and in your first meet go out and start winning high-level competition. So during that time, there's no real need for you to try and cut weight to be more competitive. You may as well just go in and hit your own PBs. And so for someone new, uh, that's brand new to it, just go into whatever weight class you currently fit into uh, and build up some experience. Um, they would be uh, the main two. Um, and then in terms of picking a weight class for someone who doesn't have an obvious answer of going up or down, which is better, um, and maybe is thinking about going down a weight class for the first time, uh, the best way to do this is during the time before you get to a meet and you start to gradually bring your body weight down and you're dieting a bit and you're getting a bit lighter, and maybe you're planning to do a practice weight cut like we mentioned at the mock meet, you can take your uh, either the numbers that you do in that mock meet or even estimated one at maxes from training at different body weights and kind of compare where your Wilk score goes. So if by cutting weight your Wilk score is going up, then great, maybe that weight class is for you. But if you spend all this time dieting down and it does nothing to your Wilks, 
and maybe it even gets worse or even if it stays the same then what's the point right you may as well just go back to your original one so tracking your uh your absolute strength can be a problem if people um just look at their absolute strength they have to probably compare something like a wilk score so they can get a fair uh comparison and that'd be a good way to test okay if i do cut weight am i going to be more competitive or not if your wilk score is going up uh, great uh, if it's not, then it's probably not worth doing so. Um, and I, I think actually uh, Eric Helms has a, a great story. You may have heard uh, of he did this before. I think he tried to do a meet at uh, maybe maybe even 83 some years back. Um, and Eric's a, a tall guy. Uh, so And he tried to do a meet at 83. And he said it almost like kill him, get down to it. Did it. And his Wilt score hadn't changed at all. So like that just like that 10 kilo jump just yeah. for absolutely no reason so there's there's a, that's a great example of if you can try those things out you can actually see if it's actually worth doing um so they would be the big, big ones depending on your age how much more potential you have to gain muscle mass uh how new you are to competing um and then what it actually does to your wilk score they'd be the main considerations for whether you should cut weight or not awesome man well, uh, you are definitely the king of weight cuts, and I'm really glad that you've been able to shed some light for the guys on how to best go about it. And one of the final questions I had for you, Danny, was a little bit unrelated to cutting weight, but you've obviously interviewed, you know, you've done copy over 150 episodes by now, I'm sure. I'm, from memory, it's like 169 or something like that. Where are we? Yeah, we're, uh, we're actually coming up to 200 next week, so that's uh, oh, our 40 big bar. Yeah. I'm no. 30 bar. <laughs> <laughs> and what I wanted to ask you was, you know, two questions, and they're a little bit open-ended, but bear with me on this one. Um, what would be the biggest commonalities that you have seen in terms of these really successful fitness experts? And the second part of the question is, you know, was there ever a light bulb moment in, you know, any of the interviews that just has stuck with you, you know, and sticks out from the others? Yeah. They're great questions for sure. Um, I, I think, without doubt, the biggest commonality that I see in all these experts or people who are really at a world-class level is that they're super aware of what they don't know. And they are uh, are are very happy to point out the places they don't know. They're very quick to say, I don't know if they don't know an answer to something or they're very good at pointing towards someone else who may be more of an expert in a certain field. Um, and they're always very careful to place context and caveats around what they say. So they'll make a statement, but they'll say, but we don't know what happens in these circumstances, or we still need more research in this field to make a clearer idea. But right now, our best guess based on research is this. And I think that's very different to a lot of the gurus or, or misleading people that, that can tend to maybe build up quite uh, strong followings based on a lot of nonsensical information is that they become this kind of person who knows everything, who has the answer to everything, who everyone just needs to look to. And uh, that's usually a red flag for someone who really actually isn't an expert. Um, and, and the opposite tends to be the case of the people who really know their stuff are the ones who point to other people and, and to talk about what other people have done or show the areas that they're not too sure about yet or, or be very careful when they make a statement to show this may work but in this certain circumstance and there's these things you should be aware of and here's certain context around this so 
So for sure, that's the biggest thing I've seen of people just being, number one, aware of what they don't know and, and the, the level uh, of information still to work out. And number two, being very careful to place uh, some kind of clear context around what they're saying. Um, the, the second question was... The light bulb moment in the Secret oh. Nutrition podcast. So I suppose there would be different ones depending on uh, what we're talking about. If it was just for uh, me, um, I, th- I think one on a personal level that I think maybe will apply to a lot of people who are within the fitness industry that might be listening to this or in a coaching capacity or trying to build up along the way. The one thing that hit me is that a lot of these um, experts or or people that that you may follow that that are putting out great stuff um, is that they're just the same as us. They're same normal people, just cool people to talk to that went through the same journey of being at a place where they didn't know as much and gradually learned more and more and more and got to this point where they are now. Because I think quite often it can be quite overwhelming when we're hearing new information and hearing these people talk. It's like, oh shit, this guy's a genius, right? It's just like, is there anything he doesn't know? And like, I'll never be that smart. I'll never know this stuff. And, and really everyone started out the exact same. Um, and that's why I, I, I try not to... Um, really get down on, on people who may be right now telling people information that isn't all that accurate. If they're doing that unknowingly just because they just don't have the required information right now, that's cool because that was me back in the day. Like I, I didn't know what I know now and it would be a terrible thing if I did still know the same thing. Um, and we, it just takes time. Um, but if you're continually wanting to learn, then that's what happens. And you start to see that and you just don't think of people that are like this elite thing that people never achieve or someone that you have to talk to in a different way like everyone's just the same that are want to help people we want to try and learn we're interested in fitness so just like reach out to people and talk to them and most people are good people and just cool so uh that's that's a cool realization i think um it'd be that more people can make and would help them kind of reach out to people more and and get chatting to people um because it's kind of weird i see it now as like uh, when people come to talk to me at seminars, like I'm just just me, it's just kind of strange. Uh, I'm just Danny. Uh, but uh, so th- that's that's the thing I, w- I would say to people. Yeah, it's uh, that that was certainly a, a cool realization. Um, that pretty much everyone has a, a fairly similar journey in, in terms of knowing nothing, knowing something, and being super confident, and then over time just gradually learning more and more and more. And then all of a sudden you're somehow an expert. So it's pretty cool. That's awesome, man. Well, Danny, thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure having you on the show. And guys, make sure you do check out Sigma Nutrition Radio. It's one of the best podcasts uh, out there. I do listen to it every week, despite my lack of knowledge of how many episodes Danny's up to. Uh, (laughs) So guys, check it out. Follow Danny on social media. And Danny, thank you again, man. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, I really enjoyed this discussion. So uh, thanks for having me on, my man. Not a problem. Thank you.